Hello, everybody. How you doing? Hope all is well. Welcome to another series of lectures. These will be on relationships and love. So this is the first introduction lecture. I want to kind of establish the different types of love that we're going to examine. In addition to that, I want to discuss a little bit from Epictetus, uh, the art of living in regards to maybe, you know, setting some good expectations and situating ourselves in a conversation about how philosophy can be helpful when it comes to loving ourselves and loving others, right? So I want to start off with that section from Epictetus, and it's called Reason is Supreme. Rationality isn't everything. There are many domains of life to which it lacks access. The greatest mysteries of existence exceed its reach. Still, our reason is the best faculty we have to safeguard our integrity. Most people do not understand the correct use of arguments by inference and the proper use of logical forms. So they conduct themselves in a random, overly reactive, or muddled fashion and are easily misled. Clear thinking is not a bloodless art. Reason's job is to critically test our conjectures, both our interpretations and our method of arriving at them. Reason is not an end, but an indispensable instrument. Questions are the engines of reason. Thus, you need to learn how to frame questions sensibly rather than emotionally. If your ability to think clearly is compromised, your moral life can become fuzzy and equivocal. Reason can distinguish error from truth and a deep truth from a petty one. The marks of good reasoning are clarity, consistency, rigor, precision of definitions, and avoidance of ambiguity. Hasten to your, th to your training in clear thinking, so you can confidently enter a complex argument and not be thrown by it. It's a lot to say here, I think. Um, and I, I want to start off with the beginning. I think love is one of those things that is clearly not only rational, right? And I think a large part of our discussion in the preceding lectures will, will be sort of about maybe striking a healthier balance between emotion and reason. And how both of these things are really necessary to have healthy, loving relationships. So that's sort of the general theme, in all honesty, of the next few lectures, I think. When we're going to be examining different types of love, right? And we'll do that. We'll get into that in a second. We have to keep in mind some of the basics that Epictetus is saying here, right? Love is confusing and rewarding. Love at times will feel difficult. Love at times will feel simple. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge idea, right? The idea of love as an idea, I mean, there's so many ideas within this one idea because ultimately it's the best thing we do, right? So it's going to also be the most difficult. It's going to also be the most painful, right? I would argue that, you know, the most profound types of suffering usually are connected to love, right? We only suffer from, or let's say truly and profoundly and intensely suffer as a result of having loved or of loving, right? So there's a lot to be said for this. And I, I love how he, you know, I think he's really being honest here. And again, we're keeping in mind, he wrote nothing down. Everything we have from him was written by his students. So I would even just, you know, just as an exercise of imagination, someone might have asked him about love. Like I'm trying to apply philosophy to love. And he's like, look, it's not going to be perfect. Right, because there's a sense that there is irrationality, almost as an inherent aspect of loving other people, and that doesn't necessarily, of course, have to be a bad thing. 
But of course, philosophy, especially in certain, let's say, modes of practicing, it's all about being rational. It's all about pursuing things through reason, right? At times, it can even seem like it's about removing or denying emotions. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, right? Um, I think we can see that philosophy can help us in all of our relationships. I think philosophy can make us a better friend, a better sibling, a better parent, a better significant other. And by, by better, I mean better for those people who we're involved with and also better for ourselves. And I think when you break it down a little bit, this uh, short section, you start seeing some really good virtues that philosophy will help us cultivate that will definitely help us in relationships, right? The ability to think clearly, right? The ability to conduct ourselves in a way that is not overly reactive, right? To lead a life with a sense of, of order, right? That makes us reliable for ourselves and for others, right? To not be overly reactive, and this is maybe because he was a stoic, right? To learn how to control our emotions a little bit, or let's say to the best of our ability, um, just because, you know, in a, in a relationship, if two people are yelling, nobody's listening, right? So if you're the person who's, who has, let's say, who's cultivated the greater capacity to remain calm, that might be really useful in certain circumstances in any type of loving relationship, right? Especially if our goal is to continue loving people, we want to get good at this. Right? So again, reason as an instrument is something, it's a really important instrument in love. To even learn, as he says here, to, to kind of like check our interpretations. How often do things get misinterpreted in relationships and that causes a problem? We can get better at making more accurate interpretations. We can get to know ourselves and see maybe the way that we're seeing things is not accurate. And even if it is, right, as he said uh, in this sentence, I love this, right? Questions are the engines of reason. We have to ask people questions. Right? In a way that's authentic, in a way that's attentive, way that's caring, right? So not rhetorical questions, but real questions. That's a great tool to have, let's say, to turn an argument into a loving discussion is by, you know, preventing ourselves from kind of, you know, let's say, hurling statements at each other and instead ask questions. Again, a part of philosophy, as we've been studying, and especially from our last few lectures, is learning, I think, to a large extent, how to maybe see more clearly, how to slow down, how to not give assent in both senses of the two different spellings of that word, right? So one meaning to accept things as true when they're not really well supported or when they're false. And then the other one, a sense is again, to like literally to rise up, right? To, to learn how to give a sense of, let's say a pause or to learn how to be patient with ourselves and others through asking questions, through cultivating openness, right? These are all really good things we get from philosophy, right? The practice of dialogue in and of itself I think when done authentically is is very, is an absolutely essential part of any loving relationship, right? So of course we get the Socratic dialogues we've discussed. Again, this from Epictetus coming as a result of a verbal dialogue. So we get certain tools, certain skills, certain ideas from our practice of philosophy that we can apply in our loving relationships to sustain them, to give them new life. Right? We can train ourselves to see things in new ways. We can cultivate the virtues we need through philosophy by, once again, as we've been doing all semester, examining ourselves, by asking thoughtful questions of others to get to know them, 
to get to know their suffering, to get to know how they feel, how they act, how they think. We need to do these things. And again, philosophy helps us do them well. We've talked a lot about philosophy as a pathway to self-knowledge, self-care, and service. All of those things help in a relationship. We're going to confront a lot of great ideas over the next few lectures. And one, I hope that we spend time with them. I know we'll spend a lot of time with um, Alain de Bouton and the School of Life. Um, the idea that in a relationship, we all are going to wear multiple different masks or have multiple different roles. In one moment, you might be a therapist. The next moment, you might be more of a teacher than an accountant, right? So all of these different roles have to be things that we're able to grapple with in order to sustain our loving relationships. And we can, right? So the idea of self-care, we want to make sure, and we'll get to this very quickly, um, that we're loving ourselves. Philosophy is a pathway to that. Because as we said, right, philosophy is going to help us grow. How? Well, it's going to help us grow and become more virtuous. That's a mode of self-love. As we'll see with Thich Nhat Hanh, right, he tells us if love stops growing, it starts to die. Philosophy is fuel for growth through, through the ideas we get from it and through the practices we get from it. And then when we talk about self-care, we also are working in the same time, right, at the same time relationships to offer care to others. What do you need? How could I help, right? These are maybe simple questions, but there's a profoundly important philosophical underpinning there when we make those a frequent question we ask of the world. Or we make those frequent questions we ask of the world. We'll have in our first guided philosophical meditation a real emphasis on the common good. Because we're understanding love and relationships, you know, capital L, capital R. So it's the specific let's say one friendship, all the way up into how we view the world, how we view the people around us, right? So a great question is, how could I be more loving? And maybe kind of sticking with the Stoics, right? One of the things um, I believe Epictetus said was, you should strive to be lovable, which is to say, you know, focus more on cultivating a self that is good, that is honest, that is just, and worry a little bit less about, I mean, because listen, unrequited love has tortured everybody, right? That's a, that's a real thing. And of course, the Stoics want us to not, um, you know, cause ourselves stress. So ultimately, right, the, the idea might be, how could I offer more love to the world, right? What is it, What could that mean for me? And also, how could I, to an extent as well, right? How can I work on being lovable? And in that, we, we mean not only how can I shape myself into this virtuous person, but also maybe how could I work on receiving love? in healthy ways. How do I do that already? So on that note, let's get into quickly a little bit, um, different types of love we're going to examine, right? So this, these are, uh, these are Greek ideas or Greek words. And I think it'll hopefully kind of broaden our understanding a little bit, right? So there's one kind of love is agape, which is like an unconditional love that almost has kind of like a divine sense to it, right? It's, it's kind of like a selfless love but there's a sense of almost like a transcendent love with agape, right? Um, another kind of love, of course, is philia, which is friendship love. And there are different interpretations of this, right? But I'm giving us what I think might be useful for our discussion, right? So philia is a love of friendship, really important. We're going to talk a lot about friendship too um, for the next few lectures. 
Eros, romantic love. We're going to talk about that as well. Um, Storge, which is like a familial type of love. Another important thing we're going to discuss. Um, and Philotia, which is self-love. So different types of love. Right? I think, you know, in English, we're a little, you know, we're a little limited. You say, I love this cheeseburger the same way you say, I love, you know, I love you, mom. So we have to, I think, expand our consciousness um, and see that these types of loves will likely have some things in common. And of course, we'll definitely have things that are different. Right. And I do think a lot of what we'll discuss will be both specific, but we could also work to kind of extrapolate some general principles as well about ourselves, about love in general, that might be really helpful for us across different types of love. Um, so with that kind of Greek in mind, I want to present what Debutan describes as the kind of like a ancient Greek mythological conception of love. And this is a really interesting starting point for how I hope these lectures will sort of come together and what they'll primarily discuss, right? So what Debutan describes is essentially the following, right? According to ancient Greek mythology, we were all born with four arms and four legs. We were too powerful in that way of being, so the gods cut us in half. For the rest of our lives, right, we are looking for our other half. So we, of course, search and search and search until we find our, quote, other half. And that's what we're looking for in love, right? So this is more of a comment um, on Eros, right, which will be the first type of love that we will um, have a couple lectures on. I think, again, right, to an extent, we can detract from some of the meaning there. And also see that maybe that could work for seeing someone else as your, quote, other half, right? Whether it might be a sibling or a friend or something of that uh, in that direction as well, right? But I do think, generally speaking, we want to interpret this in the context of um, a romantic love, right, or eros. So it's sort of like a way of conceiving of that sense of familiarity, right? The idea of a long-lost other half, right? So you were originally joined with this person, and then again, the gods came in like, no, figure it out. So we're supposed to, according to uh, Debutant's piece, Essays in Love, um, everybody, right, we're yearning nostalgically, but we're also confused until we rejoin with this person. Right? And essentially, Debutant doesn't love that. And I'd also make a bit of an inter interpretation here. I don't think the Stoics would love that either, right? We, we may want to conceive of things in the following, right? right? You are whole. You have a self that you can cultivate. So we, we're getting some of this ancient Greek sort of, let's say, for lack of a better putting it in, like this dramatic approach to love, right? Again, of course, you know, the ancient Greeks known for their dramas, right? Um, we sense that here. And Debutant shares the following, and he, I think, gets to start, you know, he starts to get us thinking in this direction, right? Theorists of love have tended to, to be rightly suspicious of this fusion, right? Again, back to the idea that we were once conjoined 
with our significant other, and then the gods split us and we're searching until we find them again, right? There's skepticism stemming from the sense that it's easier to impute similarity than investigate difference. We base our fall into love upon insufficient material and supplement our ignorance with desire. Okay, in the mature account of love, we should never fall at first glance. We should reserve our leap until we have completed a clear-eyed investigation of the depths and nature of the waters. Only after we have undertaken a thorough exchange of opinions, and he mentions a few really interesting topics here from parenting to art, science, the appropriate snacks to have in the kitchen. Um, I would say he's, he's kind of hinting here at general habits, beliefs, um, you know, the stuff that ultimately, to a large extent, right, kind of fills in the relationship. Um, investigate this stuff before we are, as he says, quote, ready to love each other. In the mature account of love, it is only when we truly know our partners that love deserves the chance to grow. And yet, in the perverse reality of love, love that is born precisely before we know, increased knowledge may be as much as a hurdle, as an inducement for it may bring utopia into dangerous conflict with reality. So I think and this is the sense we get from his other works as well. He's kind of criticizing to an extent here, romanticism, right? When we look at our movies, we listen to our music, army, like modern people, right? Um, again, not always the case, of course, right? But when we turn to our music, our movies, our literature, we kind of love this idea of the irrational fall into love, love at first sight, right? We kind of glorify that. And he's saying, wait a minute. That's a problem. He's saying, he's using words like investigation. It makes you think of words like research, right? It goes back to Epictetus on the power and importance of questions. So, the ancient Greeks starting this maybe with this sort of romantic, dramatic idea that we're literally cut in half, walking around, like, you know, at, at this sort of, uh, you know, in this confused way searching, I think that Bhutan is saying to even rethink that verb, right? Maybe we're not searching for someone, right? Maybe we're creating a self and we're looking for someone else with whom we can create a life together, not at the expense of the self and definitely not at the expense of our rationality. Because that's really what he, when he's saying investigate, he's saying practice philosophy. I think in a way here, right? As we said, right, one thing that is a staple of philosophy and we've been practicing in our meditation um, is dialogue with the self. And then of course we have the practice of philosophy as, as dialogue with others, meaningful dialogue, discourse, right? So when he's talking about opinions, he's saying we have to really converse with people about what matters to them and make sure we're talking to them about what matters to us. So we have to figure out what matters to us. Back to know yourself, right? So we're moving away maybe from a conception of love. I think it's important to talk about this in our first conversation. Um, that is this ancient Greek love at first sight, maybe romanticism type approach and into this idea of how can philosophy, how can asking questions, how can knowing ourselves, caring for ourselves, how could working to know and care for others in a way that is based on a little more rationality, not just this fall, falling into love, right? I think he might even problematize the notion of 
you know, falling in love in general. Like, because then the verb to fall, could, could we walk into love? And I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm using language a little bit metaphorically here, of course, right? But he would say, wait a minute, try to fall maybe at least slower, right? Because what he's asking us here is back to prosike. He wants us to be vigilant over our own emotions, vigilant over our own thinking, and then apply that attentiveness to in a caring and honest and respectful way, really get to know somebody. And for him, I think that's what would lead to a healthy type of love. And we're keeping in mind too, once again, I just draw a general connection, right? And we'll see this in the second meditation. Uh, thinkers like Seneca took friendship very seriously. So if you're going to call somebody your friend, you should also do this. Do your research, do your investigation, have a more mature account of love as per Debutan's uh, characterization of that. To truly know people before we give love the chance to grow. This requires also a little bit of perhaps discipline or self-control. This requires, once again, back to philosophy, talking to our emotions. This requires learning about our history, our past, right? learning about our beliefs, and then doing the same perhaps with the other person. So opening remarks, and again, I think the next lecture will likely focus a little bit more on eros. Okay, so we're going to have some guided philosophical meditation with our chapter on relationships and love. We have a few questions as always, a couple prompts, and then some short quotes, hopefully get us thinking. And as always, I'll do a little bit of elaboration on the quote, uh, depending on if I think I can offer something helpful for us. So first question, how do you aim to impact people on a regular basis? How are you most often affected by other people's actions and words? How do you help others? Fill in the blank. On a regular basis, my speech is blank percent positive, blank percent negative. The things I value in a relationship most are, and let's interpret relationship um, as different types of relationships, right? So family relationships, all the examples that are within that, friendships, and we could also uh, consider romantic relationships. My strengths in relationships are, the things I need to work on in relationships are. And again, same thing as the one before that, different types of relationships, and try to be specific there. For the following, think about it in this way, right? So maybe we'll create a spectrum from never to almost constantly. I compare myself to others, and then maybe it would be frequently, infrequently, constantly, never. And think about the results of that. And also think about the reasons. When do you start to see or feel yourself comparing yourself to others? And also think also, you know, about how you do that.
when and how do you ask for advice? When and how do you give advice? How do you express kindness? How do you express love? What are the ways you most powerfully feel loved? How do you respond to other people's achievements? How do you respond to other people's failures? What do you say most often? How do you try to offer happiness and joy to the people you love? How do you encourage the people around you to grow? Okay, so those are a good few questions. Let's now go into some bibliotherapy. So we're going to be looking at Marcus Aurelius's here from his meditations, and I'll share a few quotes with us here. Okay, first one. Stand in no need of the peace that lies in the gifts of others. So, keeping in mind as always with Marcus Aurelius, he's writing for himself to encourage himself to develop virtue, to live philosophically, right? So I think with this quote, we could you maybe think about the difference between relying on people in a way that's excessive versus relying on people in a way that's healthy, right? So I think the key term here would be need, right? Which isn't to say necessarily that there might be instances where, you know, of course, we can think about small children. There's a need there, obviously, right? Um, but I, I do think this is interesting in regards to encouraging us to cultivate a healthy, loving relationship with ourselves so we feel complete, right? The idea of need, a very strong desire, and maybe even an, an excessive desire, we want to be careful of that, right? We want to maybe make sure that we're stable, you know, which is, you know, simply to say that we can stand on our own two feet, you know, to the best of our ability as much as we can in our daily lives, right? Which of course doesn't mean, and I want to be clear about this because I think there's a lot of different, let's say, um, like levels to this, right? We need as people, right? especially for the ancient Greeks, you know, many of them believe we were naturally social beings. So there's a natural necessity there, of course, right? I think what Marcus is encouraging us here to, you know, to really consider is how do we work within ourselves to cultivate peace, right? Such that if, to give you a very simple example, our friends can't spend time with us that week or a relationship ends, right? Or friendship ends for that matter, right? If we need something, or we're almost creating a deficit within ourselves by not maybe thinking about what he's saying here. We wanna have healthy, peaceful relationships, of course. I think Marcus and the other Stoics might argue that by being peaceful, or let's say by cultivating the ability to be peaceful 
within and for ourselves, we can offer that to others more readily, more easily. Not only that, we'll be more likely to create a sustainable relationship where both people are at peace. So let's say maybe calming the storms within ourselves should always be a high priority. So when we get into relationships, we bring that healthiness into them. Yeah, relationships of all different, all different types, right? So we could say maybe that we want to work on being, or let's say on relying on ourselves. And that really doesn't in any way mean that we shouldn't at all rely on anybody else. That's not, I don't think what he's saying here, right? We're keeping in mind for the Stoics too, as we had a little bit um, in previous lectures, right? They really wanted us to serve society. They really wanted us to cultivate that inner strength, right? In the face of misfortune and prepare for misfortune. Um, and in addition to that, they needed us to be a, you know, healthy members of society who treated others justly, right? Um, so this is not at all saying, you know, go, go live by yourself at all, you know? Um, but I think, again, we keep in mind he was writing this journal it's on a day-to-day -day basis. So this might have been when he felt alone. So maybe maybe you're feeling alone right now. This can maybe shift a little bit of that consciousness, right? There's peace within you, or at least you can make peace within yourself. So again, I think this would be a, we have to maybe give a little imagination or some context with the quotes too from the meditations. All right, so maybe he was looking for a friend and Marcus had friends, you know, family, but they just weren't there. They weren't available, right? He had to remind himself, okay, I, I can handle this. And I think that's a really healthy mentality. We're going to talk a little bit from the school of life on the ancient Greek mythological conception of love, right? I want to give it all away here, but ultimately, you know, to give you a summary, um, you know, we're cut in half by the gods. We're all born with four arms, four legs, and the gods cut us in half and we're searching for our other half. And the School of Life, you know, Alan de Bouton's project um, is sort of like, okay, wait a minute. That's not really that healthy. So I think Marcus here is, you know, coming from that world a little bit, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, um, that Stoic influence, of course. <laughs> Excuse me. And he's reminding himself, well, let's not take that uh, perspective with the, with the ancient Greeks too seriously. I can be peaceful than myself. Okay, this is a great quote for those of us who might compare ourselves to others, right? Do not wear out what, we, what may still be left of your life in taking thoughts of others, except when your goal is the common good. That's powerful to me. I really like this one a lot. Try to be serving the common good. That's the only thing we should really think about, right? We, we could, you know, comparing ourselves to others clearly still go, you know, was going on thousands of years ago too. Right? That's not a new thing. We might do it more now, one might argue, for various reasons, right? But ultimately, I mean, this is great. Simple, powerful. Once again, I imagine him getting caught up comparing himself to maybe another emperor or even to just a friend or, you know, to even just someone who he saw out walking around Rome, right, for whatever reason. And he reminded himself, if, if, if I'm going to sit here and compare myself to people and either make myself feel bad because I'm at some kind of deficit or make myself feel good because I'm somehow winning in this imaginary competition, neither of those is really healthy. What is healthy is trying to be helpful, thinking about the common good and the way I compare myself to others, right? What can I learn from people maybe? What can I offer people that could be good? Those are the questions we want to focus on. And this is another great quote in regards, to, in regards to comparing ourselves to others from Marcus here. For why neglect your proper duty in marveling what this person is doing and why, what they are saying, thinking, and devising? 
and in all the vain imaginings that divert us from the guiding principle within. So again, he's not saying don't be a part of society, but the key here is that idea of a vain imagining. And think about how imaginary so much of our modern ability to compare ourselves to people really is. Yes, this is sort of a reference to social media, for example. Just, you know, one part of social media, I think, one of the unhealthy parts, among others, that could be unhealthy, or I even think to some degree social media could be a positive experience, of course. I'm open to hearing and learning more about that. Um, and I stand by what I just said. I, I think you can have a positive experience on social media. Um, that being said, right, so much of that is imaginary. And that's not, you know, the, 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 you know, we're very aware of that now, I think, culturally. But we don't necessarily maybe live with that consciousness and apply it. So we do allow ourselves to be distracted. Right? So I'm marveling at what this person is doing and why. Like, we're invent First of all, we're inventing the why more than likely, right? What other people are thinking and devising, you're not going to know that either. So that's totally imaginary. Marveling what they're doing, yeah, let's say, for example, the photo might show them doing something. But ultimately, right? to return back to the guiding principle within so that we could serve the common good, so that we could feel good about ourselves, right? That's what we should be focusing on. And this is, I think, for me, also very practical, right? How much of your time do you spend comparing yourselves to others in whatever way? How do we maybe, you know, as we've said, focus on the quantity, decreasing your time using certain apps or decreasing your time thinking about certain things? Or, I mean, these are all really good examples of practices that come from number four. Next one, it is our duty to have these two principles of action ever in readiness. One, to do nothing but what is dictated on behalf of the common good. Really big idea for Marcus, obviously, right? The other, to be prepared to change our ground if there be found someone who can correct an opinion of ours and point to another way, to a better way. I mean, the second part of this too, I think is huge. In relationships, if you cultivate that type of openness, once again, family, friendship, a relationship with a significant other, right? That willingness to be corrected. And at the very least, the willingness to hear their argument, honestly, attentively, right? Not with, um, let's say, malice, right? But to open ourselves up to that. Because one of the other questions that we didn't have that I was going to say for the next one, um, how do you respond when someone corrects you or when someone gives you criticism or constructive criticism? We want to get good at that. We're going to see at, at the heart of relationships for the School of Life in one of the essays is the fact that we have to teach and learn from each other and with each other in relationships. That's a tremendously healthy part of a relationship. Again, I think it's healthy as long as the, uh, let's say the intentions are goodness. And to a degree, to a large extent, I think it's almost inevitable, we could argue, that when we have longstanding friendships, family relationships, or even, you know, relationships that might not be all that longstanding, right? Sometimes we meet people, we click, and we almost immediately start teaching and learning from each other. We'll get more into that um, in the meditation that's kind of revolves around um, friendship a little bit more. But the idea here that we want to cultivate that posture of openness, that's a hugely important part of what it means to be in healthy relationships. Not being closed off to the fact that the people around us have something to offer. That's a great, great idea here, I think, for relationships. Another great quote about service here, that which advantages not the hive, advantages not the bee. Once again, for the Stoics, Marx, Aurelius especially, we're all woven in together. We have to think about the common good. Quick one here. Think it no shame to accept help. 
Marcus too, I think, you know, was big on the idea of asking for help, having advisors, right? As an emperor, he was, I think, you know, based on my research from him or on him from Pierre Hadot, he had people he would turn to, teachers, friends, family members, philosophers, and it was a regular part of his existence, right? He, he welcomed it, or at least seemingly he welcomed it, right? Once again, how would life be a little different for you? Maybe if you remove some of the shame, perhaps, of accepting help. Accepting help doesn't make, you know, that doesn't mean you're weak. Right, and I think what's really great too is sometimes when you allow or you ask someone to help you, like you kind of feel like, you know, you have an obligation towards them. And that's that can be really healthy, I think, right? Having a, a series of obligations um, amongst, you know, the people that we're around. Like you, you want you want to feel a good sense of obligation to people. Oh, I'm going to reciprocate, you know, something as simple as, you know, having someone over for dinner, I think. Like you can sustain whole relationships like that. So opening ourselves up to like asking for help and then also giving and receiving help, I think, is just a healthy thing to, um, you know, cultivate in our relationships. And back to this once again, have I done an act that benefits the community? Then I have received my reward. So for me, this is, you know, really profoundly connected to relationships once again, right? The self, the person who is selfless, or let's say who knows how to be selfless in a healthy way, I think is someone we admire, right? So we all need a self. So I think complete selflessness is, is not a good idea. That maybe shouldn't, you know, I, I would even say to be very hesitant um, with even making that your goal, right? I, I would say you need to have a self. To be selfless in a way that is balanced, I think it's a really good idea. So why do I mention this? Well, I think ultimately what can at times plague a relationship, and this is, again, all different types of relationships, um, would be that every time you do something good for somebody, you then need them to kind of not necessarily counter my last point, but to, I think, actually connect with it in regards to the importance of balance here, Right? Um, you should do good things to the people you love just because they're good things. And that should give you, as he's saying here, a sense of joy. Now, of course, if we want to sustain relationships, we want to sustain communities, right? A degree of um, reciprocation, I think, is healthy. Uh, we, we could think about for a moment, I mean, any relationship, right? I mean, it shouldn't be one-sided. A one-sided friendship is not a healthy friendship. A one-sided romantic relationship, a one-sided sibling relationship, and, you know, we'll all have different definitions of that, of course, um, which is why we as always examine ourselves, what we're, what we're offering, our intentions, how they're being um, actualized, and how what we offer is being received. Very important stuff, right? And, of course, we want to reflect on what we seem to be um, – receiving, right? What, what we feel the world, our relationships um, is offering us. It's also very important, right? That being said, I think if we were to accept the fact that Marcus is presenting here, that look, when I do a good thing, I feel good about it. That's my reward. It's not even necessarily to say that the other person or group of people has to do nothing. It means you feel good. Like this is, to me, this is just a win, you know, in terms of ethical self-cultivation and moral development, right? Wouldn't it be great if you just did a good thing and allowed yourself to feel good about that? Um, again, not getting rid of all standards for reciprocation, but just at least to some degree. Right? I think we can maybe reference ourselves or people we know who kind of feel like, um, you know, like unsung heroes in a way. And if we have people in our lives like that, 
make sure we now maybe heighten that consciousness and are, are more grateful towards them and maybe do more for them. And if we're those people too, you know, we, we can f maybe use this quote to comfort us a bit and also, you know, use philosophy to work on encouraging people to treat us the way we like to be treated. But I think what happens a lot in relationships is we don't, we don't uh, take this quote from Marx really seriously and we're constantly in a state of desire and it, we're constantly in a state of wanting our friends to do certain things. Right. And what also I think is interesting, and this is a very, I think a simple example, but it works to an extent is like people don't sign contracts. So I think of some friendships I had where I would constantly be driving people and eventually I got frustrated because nobody was really picking me up. Nobody was really coming. And this was a situation where I was driving constantly from the Bronx to Queens and that's fine. Or I'll come pick everybody up. That's cool. It's fine. But I ended up getting frustrated with my friends and I realized, you know what? I should be frustrated with myself. I'm doing something good for my friends. They didn't ask I me. Mean, I was always volunteering, right? Yeah. I mean, would a drink be nice? Yes. Would, okay. But anyway, the, the point is they didn't sign a contract that every time I drive five times, somebody buys me a drink. And I realized I wasn't being fair to them. So I, I think this quote was, was big for me. I was like, you know what? I'm doing a good thing. Let me just feel good about it. I think I'm a good friend. I, sh I should take pride in that and be happy with that. But also I ended up, you know, calmly and kindly telling them after I had that first realization, like, look, I'm driving a lot. And I understand, you know, no one asked me to do that, but could we, and we had a great conversation about it. I was like, you know, but could we maybe hang out a little more in the Bronx? Can we maybe have other people drive? Like, you know, it was a great group of friends we had. And I'm, I'm glad I sort of realized, you know what? No one asked me to do this. And it's a good thing that I'm doing it, but I'm just doing it too much. And I'm expecting them to respond in a way that isn't really fair. And, when, and you know, once again, I communicate the expectation calmly and clearly after I had that conversation with myself instead of getting angry. Which leads me to my final quote from Marcus Aurelius, which I think is a great one. Be healthy in word. Are your words healthy in your relationships? And we keep in mind that when you talk, you're also listening to yourself talking. You hear your words when you speak, right? And that's important too. So we talk a lot about in the past lectures about self-writing. Well, what is your speaking like on a regular basis? Is it positive? Is it negative? How do you talk about yourself? We want to be vigilant over that. And in addition to that, let's again make it social to a greater extent, right? To the people around you, right? Do they practice this? Are they healthy in word? Or are they unhealthy in word? How may you encourage them to develop, you know, develop, cultivate a little more healthiness in the way they speak? And by this, I mean, you know, mainly like a positive negative. When we, when we come together, the unfortunate reality is sometimes we like to commiserate. That's one of my favorite words, not because I like it, but because I think it's a cool word, right? Co-miserate. We're in misery together, right? Unfortunately, I don't know why we have this as a cliche, but, you know, um, misery needs company. You don't have to be there all the time. You don't have to be a part of that company. You can maybe offer something new to that company. And of course, some venting, some commiserating is necessary, right? I'm just saying if the majority of your day is spent in using your words negatively, we might want to reevaluate that. There's power, right? Words are powerful. We have to think about these things, how we use words and how others use words. It's very important for our relationships. How could we say positive things more often? Thank you. I appreciate you. I love you. And mean them. All right. So after that brief introduction, we are now going to have a lecture 
on the essay, Self-Love from the School of Life. So the School of Life ultimately, to quickly give us a sermon before we move into the essay more specifically, they encourage us to acknowledge the power and importance of our inner voices. We have to think about the sources of these voices, how you know we might characterize them, and how we might understand the importance of that, and then ways that we might be able to change some of these inner voices. Because for the school of life, these inner voices, we could even say these internal judges, really impact our degree and level of self-love. For the school of life, within all of us, there sits a judge. Okay, and this judge really impacts the way we view ourselves. And of course, the, the way we view ourselves impacts the way we feel about ourselves. Okay, this judge for the school of life is in charge of what we might call self-esteem. Right, the origins of this voice or these, you know, these voices is really important to understand. Right, ultimately for the school of life, they think that we're internalizing or we have internalized external voices, external judges that may have come from caregivers during our childhood. Um, they may have come during formative moments with people around us, right? And a lot of the time, unfortunately, these voices, these judges do not represent anything like our best insights or our most mature and healthiest capacities, right? So ultimately, we adopt these external voices, we make them our own, and often, perhaps, if we struggle with self-love, if we feel like we're lacking in self-love, these voices, these judges are not going to be positive, right? They're not going to be accurate. They're not going to be truthful or just. And ultimately, they come from the sort of imperceptible adoption that we've committed, right? Once again, from external to internal. Okay, we take these voices in because at certain key moments in the past, they sounded so compelling and or irresistible. Right? They might have come from an authority figure of some kind, right? And the, these, these messages might have even been repeated quite often, right? So they've sort of become, um, let's say, lodged into our ways of thinking. And this is really important, right? These, these ways of thinking will be ways of thinking about ourselves, ways that we then view the world, right? So we want to confront this idea of the inner voice and the inner judge and really, I think, ask a couple of key questions, right? This is right from the School of Life. Generally speaking, and we could even think about this in terms of percentages, right? Is your inner judge kind or is it really punishing? What percent of your inner voice, of your inner dialogue, in terms of you judging yourself, um, is, let's say, kind or punishing? Now, we can keep in mind here, kind doesn't mean that you necessarily, let's say, aren't scrutinizing yourself. You can scrutinize yourself kindly. So keep that in mind, right? When we say punishing, we want to make that, let's say, um, the unnecessary degree of pressure and judgment, right? So maybe another way to look at this would be, when are you going from scrutiny into unnecessary punishment? And we could also even just keep it more general, right? What percentage of this idea of the inner judge, the way you view yourself, the stories you tell about yourself, because we're all doing that, right? Uh, what percentage of those stories is positive? What percentage is negative? And we could even get more specific, right? What percentage of those stories are true? 
what percentage are kind of false or based on something that's, um, let's say, from our past that we're carrying with us that doesn't really apply to our current life, right? Because a large part of what we're going to be examining with this first section, right, or what I hope this calls to mind, is we want to start really going into our past a little bit here, examining our past. If we're saying that we've internalized voices from our formative years or let's say during our childhood as a result of certain interactions with you know various caregivers and or environments, we have to spend time with this. Why am I kind of hard on myself? Well, did I maybe see someone, um, let's say, demonstrating that behavior for me? With, did I grow up around people who are really hard on themselves or was maybe one of my caregivers kind of hard on me? Were they a little tough on me? And how could this impact the way I now view myself? Do I feel like I'm never doing enough? Where could that have come from? Right? What, what maybe do we have difficulty doing? What do we make ourselves feel bad about? Right? Maybe when we succeed, we tell ourselves certain things. When we do something that we think is a little bit stupid, we tell ourselves certain things. When we're feeling energetic, when we're feeling lazy, right? We want to touch down on these um on these moments, on these feelings, on these thoughts, and then see what the inner voice has to say about them, right? What are we usually telling ourselves about these things, about these ways of being, about these emotions, about these responses, right? And we want to, once again, get down to the, to the best of our ability, to the, to the origin of these voices. Why might I be uncomfortable when I'm feeling angry instead of just allowing myself to feel angry and then, of course, you know, control it, work to understand it, see if it's righteous anger, see if it's selfish anger. You know, why do I have to have, let's say, why do I get angry about being angry instead of just allowing myself to, to grapple with the emotion, right? What does my inner voice say when I feel like I'm getting angry? Again, just, just one example, right? Um, I, for example, have realized that when I succeed at something, I usually tell myself congratulations and like move on very quickly. Um, and I even will sometimes when I succeed, I'll make myself feel like I could have done better before I even congratulate myself. So that's, for example, one thing I've really learned to examine, right? Because I grew up, let's say, in an environment where it was always, you know, you know, very goal oriented, which can seem virtuous, but when it's excessive, it's sort of not that much fun. And also it, it isn't all that healthy, right? Um, just as an example, right? So on that note of kind of me just for a moment, they're diving into my past, I want to highlight a couple other ideas from this article that I actually encountered in my work as a graduate student that I think is very interesting. Uh, it's called Picking Wildflowers and Orchids, Attachment Theory and the Implications for Adult Education. And it's by Dr. Ted Fleming. So basically, and I, I'm going to give a very brief excerpt here, but I do think it's useful for a conversation about locating inner voices, seeing you know where they're from, and working to examine them in a way that's meaningful and helpful. So Basically, this, to briefly summarize it, this essay is about attachment theory, right? So they define attachment as the process whereby infants and young children develop deep confidence in their caregiver's protection. And this enduring tie provides security. The child's experience of attachment strongly influences subsequent reactions to stress, to relationships, self-esteem, sense of security, and identity. Right? So basically, we create models and ways of thinking, feeling, ways of being in the world as a result of this process that's taking place during infancy and early childhood. 
right? So we're experiencing very important development during this time period that affects, as the uh, quote just said, right, a number of really important things that um, we carry with us in regards to self-love and in regards to how we view the world and in regards to how we get into loving relationships in our adulthood. So it is, I think, a very meaningful exercise to think about those early memories with caregivers, right? Because those were times where we were crafting internal working models, right? Um, that once again, do impact the way we attach to our others and also attach to ourselves in the sense of like which voice we attach to, which voice we return to most frequently, which voice we promote um, in adulthood, right? So as the article continues to say, right, patterns established in childhood endure into adulthood and tend to structure the way we interact and relate. Okay. Attachment style and behaviors persist through life and undergo developmental transformation. Adult attachments are linked to one's own childhood during which internal working models were constructed and in turn influence one's own parenting behavior and ability to create secure attachments. So I want to add to this, and this is really the point I wanted to use uh, from this essay, right? We are not stuck with those voices. We are not stuck with those patterns of attachment. We are not stuck with those models only. Okay. So as the article shares, internal working models can be revised in the light of experience. Okay. But they are not always or indeed easily accessible to conscious examination and change because they were laid down early in the child's development. The attachment orientations of caregivers or adults influence their attachments with their infants and children and the parents' attachment style is in this way transmitted, right? So keep that in mind. I like to view that somewhat as a starting point. And the better we know where we might be starting off, again, the more details we have about our engagement with caregivers during formative years in our childhood, the more we're able to see let's say, how and why we might want to work through philosophy, for example, uh, to try and shape ourselves, right? So my example, again, I grew up, you know, I was mostly, especially in my early childhood, raised by my mother, and she's a highly motivated, very goal-oriented person. And as I said, that's, I think, generally a positive thing. Um, that being said, it does come with the need to in my opinion, right? Learn how to not be excessively goal-oriented such that when I succeed, I don't even tell myself that I succeeded, right? So me learning a little bit more about even just what I observed. My mother, you know, raised me and my sister, incredibly hardworking person. She was working full-time while she was getting her PhD, right? And raising us. Um, so for me, I, I witnessed someone who was very driven in a literal sense, this is a specific memory, like almost jogging around the house, getting us ready, right? Preparing us for school, picking us up, you know, working late at night. So for me, I think those early formative memories, and this is someone who I always loved, admired, someone who always loved me, took very good care of me. Um, I started to attach this hardworking, okay, what's next mentality to virtue, which again, in a sense, I think it is, but like all virtues, if we're to take an Aristotelian approach, they have to be, you know, at least somewhat balanced, right? So I've had to learn how to, within myself, balance this inclination, right? So just I'm hoping this example is kind of illustrating the point of going back, finding our, you know, who our caregivers might have been, 
learning how they may have impacted us and then how that might imply or have implications on the way we view ourselves today. Right. So it's not all that the way I deal with my own success is not all that loving because I don't allow myself to have a moment of congratulations, really. Right. Or I really cut that incredibly short because I, I feel like being driven to the next thing is the virtuous thing to do always. Right. So this essay offers a very interesting um, critique, a whole section of critiques. And this is one I, I want to highlight because I think it's optimistic and I also agree with it, right? So one of the main criticisms of attachment theory concerns the idea that infant experiences determine adult behavior. Research confirms that, that there is considerable scope for later change in attachment style, but also points to a strong link between child and adult attachment. The word determine is not optimal, but early experiences make a unique contribution to adulthood. Change is always possible, but is constrained by previous adaptations. So I like this remark, and this is you know this is something I, I'm, I'm you know I'm still learning about now in my class, in all honesty. But I like the this to me feels balanced, right? So for me to um, say that I 100% agree or that I've done you know an immense amount of research to support or deny this claim is not what I'm saying. That being said, I do think for our conversation today, this is a useful approach to take and one that I agree with for the purposes of this conversation, right? Because again, the word to determine is what's really in question in this short excerpt, right? We are not necessarily, we may argue, right? And again, I think it's useful for the rest of this essay that I'm going to explain. We might want to think that we're not 100% determined by our early experiences with, with, uh, with our childhood caregivers, but it also might be naive to think that we're not influenced by them at all, right? So I think the balanced approach is, is um, or let's say this excerpt, I think, presents a pretty balanced approach to how and why we might want to consider the importance, return to our memories, right, uh, that we get from our childhood, while keeping in mind that we are capable of change, right, in regards to the ways that those experiences in our childhood might impact us, right? Which I mentioned earlier from the previous excerpts. And I really do think self-love falls into this category, right? So we might even want to say, you know what? The way I practice self-love might be influenced by my early experiences or some formative experiences during my childhood. And I think we might even argue that, and this is a bit of an additional point, right? I would say that, of course, um, if we've had ex past experiences with friendships, um, past experiences in romantic relationships, those experiences in a somewhat similar way impact the way we we love ourselves and m impact the way we might view friendships in the future or uh, romantic relationships in the future as well. And I would even say the same thing goes for family relationships, right? So this this idea of the relationship between child and caregiver or caregivers is very important, right? And I also think an examination of how we might have uh, experienced love in other contexts, of course, is, is a very important thing to sit down maybe in a self-writing session uh, and examine, right? Our past relationships, our past romantic relationships, our past friendships. What were some patterns? What were some negative patterns? What were some positive patterns? What might we aim to change? Right? So it's very interesting questions. And I think these questions all really revolve around, to some extent, this idea of the inner voice. Right, because that inner voice that we've adopted might have been a friend in the past. Again, might have been a caregiver in childhood, might have been a former significant other. And we have to be very cautious about what we adopt and what we internalize.
And I think that's what this first section of the essay really calls into, uh, into question. It also really calls to our attention very meaningfully, right? What do our inner judges and voices say most frequently? And once again, characterize them. Is it more punishing or is it more kind? Right. And then, of course, whose outer voice became our inner voice? So why bother thinking about what the inner judge, what the inner voice might be saying? Right. So the second part of this essay really elaborates nicely on that on that idea. Right. Um, and basically, you know, why the inner voice matters. So. I'm going to read a little bit from the essay here. I think they do a great job of explaining it. And um, again, this voice that we've talked about already will affect our self-esteem, our view of ourself, our ability to be in relationships, and of course, our ability to love ourselves, right? So, afflicted by a lack of self-love, romantic relationships become almost impossible. For one of the central requirements of a capacity to accept the love of another turns out to be a confident degree of affection for ourselves built up over the years, largely in childhood. So we return to that idea a little bit here, right? So largely does not mean totally, of course, right? We're keeping that in mind. We need a legacy of feeling that we in some basic way deserve love in order not to respond obtusely to affections granted to us by prospective adult partners. Now, we need a legacy. He already mentions childhood, right? Well, we can start, again, in light of especially what I offered a few moments ago, from the other article, right? We can start a legacy. We can revise how we view our current legacy to make it more truthful, to make it more helpful, right? To make it more accurate. We can help ourselves to understand that we do deserve love, right? We can add to that legacy. So keep that in mind too. Back to the essay a little bit. Without a decent amount of self-love, the kindness of another will always strike us as misguided or fake, even as strangely insulting, for it suggests that they haven't even begun to understand us. So different are our relative assessments of what we happen to deserve. We end up self-destructively, though unconsciously, disappointing the intolerable, unfamiliar love that has been offered to us by someone who clearly has no clue who we are. So we, we don't even want to tolerate the love, right? So this is a great idea. If you want to be in loving relationships, and he may, I think, be referring here more so to romantic relationships, but I also think this goes, um, some of these ideas work with the idea of pursuing friendships and being in friendships as well, right? We have to reevaluate perhaps, again, these voices. We have to, we're going to get how to change the voices. One of them is going to be to add a new voice. And we'll talk about how to do that in a, in a minute, right? But ultimately we have to see there's a lot at stake here. If we don't take these ideas seriously, if we don't take the notion that we have to go back, as we talked about in our first uh, first section of this lecture, you know, if we don't take those exercises, those practices seriously, we might be running the risk of never fully and authentically opening ourselves up to loving others and to being loved by others. And that's not any way to live, right? We want to make sure that we are able to cultivate a healthy sense of ourselves and a healthy sense of what we are striving for in our relationships. Right? It's okay 
to work on these things, right? He says, self-love seems connected up with narcissism, vanity, selfishness, and a blindness to the needs of others. But that's not really true, right? We're not in danger of becoming narcissists, right? In fact, he says, we're more so, you know, we have a tendency more so to be really unfairly and deeply hostile to ourselves, right? We have the exhaustive habit of taking stock of our failures, of refusing to forgive ourselves, and of being suspicious of anyone strange enough to think well of us. And they add, which I think is a great point, if we saw someone else treating us the way most of us treat ourselves, we might think them really cruel. Right? And we seek partners who will do us the favor of not thinking any better of ourselves. I'm sorry, thinking any better of us than we think of ourselves. If we are not modestly but genuinely convinced of our own lovability, receiving affection will just simply feel like being bestowed a prize for an accomplishment that we haven't ever earned. Okay, without the sufficient ballast or supportive self-love, we will go on to reject positive treatment across a range of areas, offers of friendship, professional promotions, praise in the professional context. All of these things will set off an alarm. We will mess up interviews. We will sabotage our work opportunities, right, and grow strange and rude around possible new friends in attempts to bring our outer reality back into line with our inner assessments of ourselves. Right. So this inability or let's say let's say uh, our lack of willingness or discipline to sit with these voices, characterize them, understand them could lead to some really detrimental things. Right. So that's the why right there. That, that should really encourage us. You want to have a healthy relationship with your significant other. Maybe some of the problems are arising from a lack of self-love and maybe not, of course. Right. But ultimately it really warrants considering. And then we have the final section of this, which I think also connects nicely to the why, because the why kind of is in the middle here, right? So why should we bother thinking about the voices? That's why. Well, then we have to maybe think about why we should change some of these voices. And this is also a little bit about how we can change the voices. Okay, we have to learn to be better judges of ourselves. It doesn't mean that we should not judge ourselves. That's a bad idea, right? But again, we could judge ourselves kindly, more accurately, more honestly, more justly, and that's really important. So part of improving how we judge ourselves involves learning in a conscious, deliberate way to speak to ourselves in a new and different way, which means exposing ourselves to better voices. We need to hear constructive, kindly voices often enough and around tricky enough issues that they come to feel like normal and natural responses so that eventually they become our own thoughts. So this is where, of course, I'm going to suggest some self-writing, as I pretty much always do, right? hard to think about thoughts. It's very hard to change thoughts. It's possible, of course, but I think self-writing practices where we sit with the following ideas are really a good idea, are really good practices. Okay. So one approach to the, fo to, to, to the following, right, which is to say um, to changing the voice and adopting a voice that we can turn to more frequently that will then shape the way we view ourselves and judge ourselves. Um, is to identify a nice voice we heard in the past and give it more scope. That's a great self-writing prompt, right? Who encouraged me in the past? Who maybe offered me some criticism but did it in a way that was kind, in a way that was patient, in a way that was loving? Write about it, right? 
And then we can start promoting it, right? So instead of promoting a punitive critical voice, this new voice that we go back into our past, identify and discuss, can represent a calm, understanding way of addressing failings. We could try to focus on this kind of supportive approach and summon it on a regular basis, rather than waiting for it to pop as it rarely does into our heads. We can deliberately nurture and train it. This could also revolve around something else I suggested with the practice, right? Well, why put a photo up? Well, maybe the person in the photo is this voice for you. So when you leave your apartment in the morning, when you're going to work, whatever, you can look at this photo and you're reminded of their voice, what they offered to you, right? And we can actively rehearse to ourselves the words of consolation they would most likely have offered us. Right? This also goes back to the practice maybe of thinking about family mantras or mantras from our friendships. Right, These phrases that we can you know, connect to people. So again, for me, my example I think I offered was with, with my papu, who was someone who was definitely, you know, my grandfather definitely was a caregiver um, and someone who definitely impacted me in positive ways in the ways that this article is discussing right now. Um, and that phrase I have from him is siga siga, which is a Greek phrase meaning little by little, right? Um, so when I think of that that phrase, I don't just think about the phrase. I think about his warmth, his care, right? What he wanted for me, how I admire and love him, right? So these are all really good ideas, I think. Whether it's a photo or the mantra or the self-writing, right? And then we train. We train ourselves to connect to this person and this voice that then helps us feel better about ourselves and or right, helps us grow. Because sometimes I think we might even have a voice that's initially not entirely positive. But again, we're sticking to this distinction between like really excessively punishing and scrutinizing ourselves with some kindness, right? Because some of that, some of that voice too might come in the form of encouragement that we need to change some of our ways of thinking, seeing, feeling, acting, right? Those are good things too. Right. Um, the other strategy for changing the voices in our heads is to try to become an imaginary friend to ourselves. And this part of the essay is great because he really starts to characterize what a good friendship is. Right. A friend doesn't forget that we're doing some things right, even when we're messing up. A friend generally likes us the way we are. And of course, a real friend, in my opinion, wants the best for us. And they understand, understand that that sometimes will, will require that they correct us but they do so in a friendly way, right? We talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, we could almost, you know, when comparing the way we talk to a friend to the way we talk to ourselves, we might really have to consider, are we being cruel to ourselves, right? How would I say this to a friend? How would a friend um, discuss this with me right now? And back to self-writing for a minute, I may have already mentioned this, right? But this is where in the self-writing, you might want to use the word you, like you're talking to yourself, Get into that voice as if you're talking to a friend. Another thing to adopt, maybe it might even be a you know a third person. Talk, you know, write your own name a little bit, like a note to yourself, right? That might encourage us to adopt more of a friendly voice. Right? So a friend thinks we're good enough already, but they want to join forces with us to help to solve a challenge that we might be facing. Okay, the good friend is compassionate.
right? So we need to maybe, and this is a little bit of a meta conversation, right? Back to some initial points, right? We have to break with our habits of mind. Okay, we have to break with the habits of mind that are really punitive about our failures, that are really punitive even about our successes. Because to constantly be punishing ourselves, of course, is going to detract from our self-love, right? And then when things go wrong, and this is another great part of the essay, we maybe should give ourselves a little bit more compassion, as a friend would, right? And make some space for self-pity. Of course, don't live there permanently or don't feel self-pity so intensely that it becomes a prolonged state of sadness or you know of awfulness. But ultimately, I think sometimes we deserve a little pity. And this is something that the essay uh, raises, right? A point the essay raises. Okay. We have to train ourselves a little bit to have a healthy relationship with self-pity so we make space for it. Not that we succumb to it, right? But the essay really nicely, I think, says self-pity is compassion we extend to ourselves. A more mature aspect of the self turns to the weak and lost part of the psyche and comforts them. It tells them it understands. Okay, it allows for a while, right? A bit of, let's say, maybe immaturity because that's what's going on in the moment. And that's what those feelings kind of are, right? To, to be, let's say, the way the essay talks about it, right, is to maybe be upset about a small thing. Especially in light of larger suffering, it seems a little bit ridiculous. Right, but giving a little space for that ridiculousness might not be a bad idea. Right, to give ourselves a little space for that, I think, is ultimately what the uh, the essay is suggesting. Because if you don't let yourself ever sweat the small stuff, right, there's a lot of small stuff to sweat that's going to happen in life. And again, it goes back to this idea of are you just constantly punishing yourself and not being compassionate with yourself? So self-pity is, again, as he's saying here, an opportunity to practice, again, as long as it's within balance, I think, or within reason, right? Um, a little bit of self-pity isn't the worst thing in the world. To think of how there's larger suffering in the world, I think, also can be useful, right? But that's when we should move on. And think for a moment, this works really nicely with the friendship thing, right? Typically, if you're talking to a friend that you care about and they're sort of, you know, again, sweating the small stuff, you don't immediately tell them to get over it, right? You don't immediately say, all right, people have it worse, get over it. You wouldn't do that. That would come across as kind of rude, right? And yet, again, we have a tendency to do that to ourselves. So make a little room for that. Again, as if you were talking to a friend, I think is the takeaway with that. And the final suggestion for changing the inner voice that I think this, I think, is probably my favorite is to create friendlier expectations for yourself. Right, what he describes ultimately here is that we should maybe seek to be good enough. Okay, Because if you're someone who's especially hard on yourself and you're always failing to live up to some ideal standard, we have to shift that to increase our self-love. Always feeling like you're falling short of some ideal standard is not going to help you feel confident. It's not going to help you develop self-esteem. And it's not going to help you even interact with the external world, right? Because things don't go to plan a lot of the time, right? So he's talking about Donald Winnicott, right? Psychoanalyst. And he was doing work with parents who were kind of obsessively trying to be the ideal parents. And ultimately, it was making them really anxious, really stressed, such that they like their kids, you know, it wasn't even fun for anybody to be together because they were so obsessively trying to be this ideal parent that their emotional states were affected negatively and they ended up being 
you know, parents that were kind of tough to be around. So when he said, like, look, just try to be good enough instead of being trying to be ideal, he was seeking to provide the parents with a more sane, balanced, and appreciative inner voice that could be fair to their great efforts, right? The efforts they were really making, we have to be fair with that, right? Our great efforts. We have to acknowledge that. And we have to be more forgiving to the inevitable mistakes. Okay, there's a terrible irony at the heart of a punishing inner voice. It says it's trying to make us better, but actually the burden of being constantly criticized from the inside has the opposite effect. It's a great point that the essay pretty much ends on, right? It's ironic. Even back to my initial example, I'm kind of seeing this now, right? It's you succeed and you make yourself feel like you didn't. So it's a very strange relationship if we don't learn to control these inner voices that we'll create within ourselves. Again, not conducive to love, that's self-love. And then obviously, as we talked about too, about why we should care, it's it's both ethical, we want to feel good about ourselves, right? And you know, we want to make sure we're being truthful and just and um, you know, in our examination there, right? Of course. Um, but also there's moral development, right? It'll affect the way we relate to others. It'll affect the way we relate to the world. Right, so let's work to establish different expectations, perhaps that again give us credit where credit is due, that are more realistic, right? That don't stress us out, and that are still good, of course, right? Let's adopt more of a friendly approach to how we talk to ourselves and think about how we are friends and how others are friends to us and how we might change those narratives. Let's even locate a specific voice from our past. And I think it could be someone from your life, but also I think we could even work in the present to find maybe it's authors, maybe it's philosophers, maybe it's musicians that kind of can play a similar role. I think that's a really good idea too, right? Um, that encourage us. Right, and when we face things in life, or when we face negative thoughts that aren't true, that aren't just, right? We have to think to ourselves, what would this person say to me now? And this person we located, this new friendlier version of ourselves, right, for examples. And we have to work to internalize these better voices so that we can become better judges of ourselves and in so doing, love ourselves more and be open to receiving love and expressing love with others.